0: Well, we have been journeying with Job for a while, Um, and this morning we finally begin to get to hear God speak directly to the servant. So turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Job, chapter 38. Job 38, it's a lengthy section uh, that we're going to cover this morning. Uh, There's two speeches that God gives to Job, uh, and so this may help. Oh, children, you are dismissed to children's church. (laughs) Flee away. Run away, run away. It's a little harbor sneaking out. He's like, are we sure? Is this okay? There we go. Okay. So there's two speeches that God gives to Job here at the end of the book. One is from chapter 38, runs through. It's one of those really bad chapter breaks. From 38 through the first five verses of chapter 40. Uh, and then he goes from 40 through 41. And... In each of these, God is dealing with two huge things, uh, ideas, concepts that are looming in Job's mind and in his heart. And so we want to we want to work our way through them, uh, find the encouragement that is intended to be there. Uh, there is a measure of complexity uh, in in what God is saying and. In uh, the poetry that he uses, the imagery he uses is, is just tremendous. And so I think ultimately very helpful for us. To, to find the most help, though, I, I want to take you to, to a dark place. Because that's where Job is. Um, and, and Job is in a place of anxiety and fear and sorrow and overwhelming grief. And uh, if, if you've been there, or maybe you are there now, that you know, one of the things that it robs from you uh, is the ability to rest. And that's actually been one of the things that Job's complained a lot about. And he's even complained that even when he tries to sleep at night, he has nightmares. Um, I, I was telling somebody this week, I haven't had a nightmare since I was, I don't know, nine, 10, something like that. Um, we moved houses, our house, I watched my house burn when I was like five. Uh, then we moved when I was in first grade, and I was terrified. Our house got broken into several times. Yay, west side of Baltimore. Um, and, and and I just had a lot of nightmares, and then eventually they went away. And for a long time, and I'd heard, some, frankly, some bad teaching um, was the result. I, I became convinced if you had nightmares, then you had a spiritual problem, right? That somehow you could control what you dreamed at night, Um, by thinking right things or doing right things, whatever. And so if I ever had a bad dream or or anything, I felt guilty over it. Uh, And and then I got to a place where I haven't had a nightmare for a long time. I'm not naturally an anxious person. Uh, But you know what started happening when I started preaching through Job? I started having lots of nightmares. I mean, the kind that just wake up in the middle of the night, cold sweat, heart racing. And Job has actually been very helpful for me this way, to understand Job talked about the nightmares he's experiencing, how it's robbing him of sleep. Now, I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs. I don't know how all this works. I, I do know this. Nightmares can be spiritual warfare, and they can be satanic oppression and demonic. I, I'm convinced of that. But I want to point us to this reality. You can go longer without food than you can without sleep. Going without sleep, it, it drives you crazy. And so the inability to rest in the midst of a difficult season just compounds the suffering that you're experiencing. So Job is in a place where he cannot rest. He can't get physical rest. He can't get mental rest, emotional rest, spiritual rest. He is struggling to just rest. He can't rest. And at the end of this, God begins to speak. And um, the way God approaches him is in such a tender and caring way. I, I once heard a story of, of a mama hen. She was found in the rubble of a burned down chicken coop. The hen didn't survive the fire, but tucked up under her breast, under her wings, the farmer found her brood of tiny chicks safely sheltered by her mama's wings. God treats us like a mother hen who draws us in close and safely. Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Or the, verse, the last verse of the passage that, that Darren read, Isaiah 41:10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here's the question that we want to ask walking into the text this morning. How can we rest in God during terrifying, confusing uncontrollable pain, in puzzling pain, how can our anxious hearts and troubled minds find any rest at all? Job is a righteous and upright man, blameless, that fears God and turns from evil, a man of integrity. Those are quotes of God's opinion of Job. He is not some, some infant in Christ who is still trying to learn and get their feet under them. This is a mature, godly man who cannot find rest rest as he's suffered his questions of why is this happening which there's nothing wrong with those questions but his questions have drifted into accusations it's become mingled with this warped understanding of the world that if i do good i get good if i do bad i get bad and so but i know i've only done good but why am i getting bad and and so what is going on god must not be actually all that good or loving. He's begun to make fierce accusations against God and the way God rules the world. And these things have begun to rob Job of his abil- ability to rest in God. This morning, you want to understand from this first speech of God to Job that he can silence our accusations so we can actually come to a place of rest before we ever come to a place of praise. <clears throat> Elizabeth Elliott, I listened to her radio program for years. I've told some of you this. I, When I was working construction, I was driving around. Part of my job at one point was to supervise job sites. So I spent six, seven hours a day just driving. And so I would listen to nothing but, but radio, Christian radio, the first half of the day. And I would listen to one preacher after another. So Uh, Everything from David Jeremiah to Charles Stanley um, to R.C. Sproul to John McCarthy. It was just one guy after another. And Elizabeth Elliott was in there as well. And she would always end her program with this, you are loved with an everlasting love and underneath are the everlasting arms. Which just takes on a greater profound weight coming from someone who's experienced such extreme suffering. We long to hear the voice of Christ saying to us, let this little child come to me so we can just rest. How can we go from this dark place of anxiety and struggle and racing thoughts? um, What could I have done different so I'm not in this spot? How am I going to manage this conversation coming up, this decision I have to do? What am I going to do with it? I can't seem to turn my brain off. Have you ever been in a place where you can't seem to just turn your brain off? That's where he's at. Before we can ever, it seems like, get to a point where we can actually open our mouths to praise, we've got to come to a point where God gently silences us. That's what this first speech is going to do for us this morning. Now, I do want to manage our expectations a little bit. I want to manage them a little bit for us because I think this is helpful. And so we're actually going to start at the end of the speech. I want to show you Job's response. And so you're going to have to turn a couple pages. Uh, Job 40 And I want want you to just see how Job responds to the end of this first speech that God is going to give to him. This is what Job is going to say. God ends his speech this way. The Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job answered, verse 3, the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice. I'll proceed no further. Job is not ultimately broken at this point the way he will be after the second speech. At the end of the second speech, Job is going to acknowledge that some of the stuff he said when he went from question to accusation, that it was sinful. He had a warped view of who God was and how God runs the world. That it's unjust, it's not fair, it's wrong somehow. And there's a lot of theology that God's going to unpack in the second speech for Job to come to that place, but he's not there yet. Job is in process. We're finding Job this morning in process. It's progressive. It's it's not end of the moment. Job is stunned to silence for sure at the end of this first speech we're going to unpack here in just a few minutes together. Now, I don't want us to be discouraged by this process. Years ago, I was helped by someone when I was talking to them about discipleship and they said this to me. When you're working with someone growing spiritually, someone that that you're wanting to see become like Christ and you're discipling, don't be discouraged by where they're at. Focus on what direction they're headed. That's hugely helpful to me. In our own lives, I think that's helpful. And so I don't want us to be discouraged that Job is brought to a point of silence at this point, but not quite ready to own everything he's thought that's wrong He's not quite ready to fully praise and embrace the goodness of God. He wants to believe it, but he's not quite there. He's headed in the right direction. There's a lot for Job to digest. And I really think this is really helpful for us. I remember talking to my wife right after she was diagnosed with cancer. I was like, what are we going to do? And it was was just overwhelming. And I remember we just said, you know what? We're going to eat it like you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. Jesus says it this way, sufficient for the day of the evils thereof. You can't figure everything out. And if you try to figure everything out, you're going to go nuts. And now what it's going to do is increase your anxiety and your worry and your fears. You, you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And I, so I think it's really helpful, Job. There's no easy push button, this fixes your problem. Take two verses, call me in the morning. And so I think it's actually helpful for us to know that Job, this upright, godly, blameless man, is in process. And so the first thing I think it's helpful to see that Job is silent, but not fully all the way home, as we might say, is be patient with your heart and the hearts of others people that are suffering need patience. It takes time. Don't be discouraged that you're not all the way there yet. And don't be discouraged that someone else isn't. Second, these two speeches of God are specifically answering a suffering believer. These speeches of God are not intended by God to answer every question about why does evil exist in the world? These two speeches are not intended to be an apologetic for someone who's an atheist, denies the existence of God, or agnostic, doesn't believe you can prove the existence of God. These speeches are not intended to convince someone who has turned from the faith. These speeches, listen to me now, these speeches are God interacting with one of his children who is struggling in the midst of suffering. So use them that way. You break a leg, you don't need an MRI of your brain. So don't give people the wrong medicine. I'm not saying there aren't truths here that would be helpful in those conversations. I'm not saying there aren't truths here that might even structure or outline those conversations, but use the tools that God gives you for the job they're intended to be used for. These chapters, these speeches are intended to help a suffering believer wrestling in the midst of a lot of their anxiety, fears, and darkness to work through it with their heavenly father. What should we expect then? We want to manage expectations. What should we expect then? We should expect for God to move our hearts to silence, to a place of rest so that we can hear even more from him. Now, so that's the end. i go back to the beginning. Another truth that's helpful for us is God speaks out of the storm. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. It's, it's language for storm. Now, it's interesting because last week we ended with uh, Elihu, remember? And Elihu has all this imagery of a storm. And he, he told us in his first speech, Elihu did, that God speaks out of the storm, or of the storms of our suffering, and he speaks in our conscience to us. Uh, so you hear from God all the time, Job. One of Job's accusations is God's silent. Elihu says, no, that's not true. And then he ended with this beautiful image of the storm going by, and it's like you coming out of your house when there's been this fierce storm, and, and suddenly there's the, the rainbow in the sky, and it's a beautiful moment. And, and so the storm has passed by. And so it's fascinating that God chooses to speak out of the storm to Job in this moment. It, it's, it's like God is saying, amen to what Elihu claimed. I'm going to talk to you out of the storm. And the storm we normally would think of as, as terrifying but it's not always terrifying in the Bible. It, some storms deliver. And whether it is the fierce floods that cleanse the earth of evil, that was God's intention. Whether it is the storm sea where Christ ultimately says, be still to demonstrate his power. Whether is God uh, controlling through a fierce wind to split the Red Sea so the Jews could pass through. In the midst of our suffering, it's easy to think of them like storms. My, one of my closest friends, uh, Josh Pegram, you've, I've talked to him about him so many times. He's, his dad died suddenly, unexpectedly. He was playing basketball with his sons and died. Just went up for a rebound, dropped to the ground dead. Josh's mom died last week. So he's now, without either of his parents, she, she was rear-ended by a girl doing 70 mile an hour. She was parked at a red light. She lived for a few weeks after that, trying to do rehab, and she just didn't make it. And I can only imagine the storm, the swirling storms of suffering. It feels like a storm. It, it feels like, like your heart is quaking like an earthquake. It feels like... Swirling thoughts are like tornado force winds that your crying eyes feel like floodwaters around you. So for God to speak out of the storm to Job is so appropriate. But the Bible uses stormy language to describe the power of God even over evil. I don't have time to go to all these. They're printed on the notes, but Psalms, Psalms alone in 18, 29, 74, 89, and 93. He all uses language of storms. To conquer evil, three times in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zechariah. We think of the storms of our life as destroying us, and yet the language in the Bible is that He often often uses storms to deliver us. Zechariah says it this way in Zechariah nine fourteen through sixteen: The Lord will appear over them; His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. God is speaking out of the storms of your life. Listen now, and he intends to shout to you the, the fierce screaming winds you hear outside of your mind racing. He is is intending to shout to you and me about his goodness, his grace, and his gentleness that will deliver us. He's speaking to Job out of a storm not to overwhelm or destroy him because it's a comfort, it's a reminder that the storms of life doesn't mean God has abandoned me. That's That's how it feels, right? But he's saying that's not true. He speaks gently to Job in the sense that he asks him one question after another but they're all rhetorical questions. <laughs> they're all easily answered, so they require very little thought from Job to answer them. Every question that God asks in 38 and 39 could be answered one of a couple different ways. Uh, I can't, but God can. <laughs> or I don't know, but God knows. Every one of them. So you really don't have to think a lot about it. Uh, I've already shared with you when a person is under intense stress and suffering, like there are breaker switches in their brain that start flipping to prevent them, even it slows down their thought processes. It slows down. It inhibits your ability to make decisions. Your brain can only process so much. And it's like to keep it from breaking, God just slows your brain down. You get stupid. You feel stupid. You're like the things I, used to, I What do you want on your sandwich? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> and the guy at Jersey Mike's or Subway looks like you're like a moron. Right? But your mind is swirling. And you're like, I don't. How do I do this again? And so by asking rhetorical questions, God is not dealing unkindly with his servant, but he's he's driving Job back to what Job already believes. You know, we need that sometimes, don't we? Job's evil friends, and I say evil at this point because I really don't care what their intentions were. They spoke the words of Satan to him. His evil friends looked at his questions, judged even his questions as sin, and just heaped things on him. Elihu came into the picture and says, wait a minute. No, I believe you're righteous. I believe you've drifted. Let me remind you of truth that you already know to be the case. Any parent has done that with their child. You go to deal with your child, maybe you have to discipline them, and the child's screaming, upset, mad, whatever, right? And And you're saying, now you know mommy or daddy love you, right? You're telling them what they already know to be true, but you're affirming it to the heart. That's what God is doing here with these questions. He's simply affirming to Job what Job already knows to be the truth as a way of helping Job to work through his anxiety and come to a place of rest. And so God deals gently with his suffering people. Listen, I would just say this way. If God deals gently with suffering believers, how do you think you and I should deal with them? Gently, patiently, kindly. Remind us that Paul even tells us in Thessalonians that when we come into someone's life who's struggling, they could be struggling because they are rebelling. So I'm not going to do what God tells me to do. They could be struggling because they've grown weary of doing the right thing. So they did the right thing for a long time, but they got tired of it. Or they could be struggling because they just don't know any better. The person who's rebelling doesn't need the same medicine as the person who's gotten tired. The person who's gotten tired does not need the same medicine as the person who doesn't know any better. Dealing with a suffering believer should always be clothed, soaked, drenched in gentleness. And so God is going to speak gently to Job. And so let's start getting into the speech and start understanding a little bit more. There's two broad sections to the speech, and it's going to be all about God's creation. Chapter 38, 8 through 38 is about the inanimate part of God's creation. What I mean by that? Rocks, trees, sky, universe, rain, snow, inanimate. The second section, he's going to move to animate parts of his creation, animals primarily. And there's going to be a number of them. And he's going to be using both of these to demonstrate one dominant truth. God's in control. I'm in control. That's, if there's one thing that's going to get shouted from the speech, I'm in control. I'm in control. I'm in control. Now, here's what's fascinating about that. For the suffering believer, that's their gripe. God, if you're in control, why is this happening? And so there is some nuance to it. There is some complexity to the way God's going to talk about it then. And the complexity is this. Job thinks one plus one equals two. And God in this speech is going to say, look, I'm in control, and you can't boil me down to simple math. Now, (laughs) every wife in this room knows that. Right? Men complain all the time. Women are so hard to understand. I'm a man, you are some complex creatures. But look, when I was in kindergarten, my art teacher taught us how to finger paint. What color do you want, Stephen? Here's your piece of paper. Well, I would like to make purple, so I'd like red and blue. You get one color, red or blue. I want purple, you get red or blue. Fine, I'll take red, and I'm gonna draw a pirate that's bleeding everywhere. Because I'm a boy, and that's what we do. Finger paint. So I'm with my finger paint. Here's my art. There is a simplicity to it. There is a directness to it. There is a beauty in the directness and the simplicity. That is no Starry Night. That is no Rembrandt. Storm-tossed sea. That is no Van Gogh. That's not even a Jackson Pollock where you're throwing different colors on the canvas. In other words, while there can be a beauty in simplicity and directness, there is an overwhelming beauty in complexity and depth. Right? Listening to a song stripped down to just the acoustic version is really cool. But it's also amazing to hear all the instruments come in and join with it. God cannot be reduced to your and my math equations. One plus one equals two. And so there is a nuanced complexity to the control of God that is defying the way Job thinks about him. And that's part of what God's going to do in those. He's going to do it in these two main stages, uh, the inanimate and the animate, and they are going to unpack a little bit more. The first one, the inanimate, is how he uses the world, how he uses the world. Um, and so we could center on it, first of all, this way, the world is God's baby. So let's read these verses We're going to come back to this section that we're skipping in a moment. Hang on, bear with me. But we're going to pick up on 38, verse 8. I want to walk us down through this. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band. What does that mean? The world is God's baby. Now, I love that imagery, right? Um, You ever had a baby that fights sleep? They don't want to go to sleep? right? They're crying. You know they're tired. You're tired of they're tired, right? <laughs> and so you're rocking them, and they're fussing, and you're holding the pacifier, and you're patting their bottom, and, and you know, you're, just, you're just holding them. You're rocking them, and they're fighting, so, ah, trying to stay awake, ah, and finally they go to sleep, and you put them to rest. So what's fascinating about this is Job has complained, God, you know what you treat me like? You treat me like the chaotic, roaring sea, And in Job's ancient Eastern mindset, nothing pictured more chaotic, powerful, overwhelming force than the ocean. You can't tame the ocean hurricanes would come in. What are you going to, we actually call them medicanes. Hurricanes would come through the Mediterranean. They're called medicanes. They come through fierce storms. And it's like nobody can, so the sea represented chaos and power that no one could control. And Job has said, God, you're treating me like you treat the ocean. You're treating me like a chaotic power. God, have you ever been in suffering? You said, God, why are you doing all this to me? I'm broke already. I can't handle one more thing. You don't, you'll go five years without a flat tire. Sure as the world, the week a friend needs you, your kid is sick, your workplace is a disaster, your boss calls out, you get a pay cut, you get a flat tire too. And you're like, what in the world? One more thing? It's one more thing. And that's how Job feels. You've taken all my kids, you've taken my health, you've taken my wife, now you take my sleep? It's one more thing. And God's answer to Job is, wait a minute, (laughs) just so you know, Job, The ocean is like a baby for me. I don't need all this power to overcome the ocean. I'm so powerful as God, I like hold the ocean like you hold a baby. Like, let me just change the diaper, put it back down. In other words, I'm not intimidated by you, Job, and I'm not intimidated by the ocean. I'm not picking on you, Job. I'm not coming after you, Job. I'm not sitting in my throne room thinking, oh man, here's Job. I better put my thumb on him to get him. I don't need to prove how powerful I am to you. I don't because I, I just am. God is not an insecure glory seeker that has to buy love from his followers. He is God. And he's fully satisfied in himself at all times. And so he says, this world is like my baby. And so you can see all these other ways he talks about controlling it. Uh, Prescribed limits for it, verse 10, and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. If you watched any of the footage from the damage of Hurricane Ian, who exactly could say, no water, you don't come in here. Meanwhile, they're standing in ankle deep water. But God controls it. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, the wicked be shaken out of it? That's that's an amazing image. What he's saying is, Job, when there's evil, uh, I I credit Ray Ortland for this image. He says, it's like I pick up the world and I shake it the way if you and I went on a picnic and there were ants on the blanket. I lay it back down. Job, I'm not intimidated by wicked in the world, because at any time I want to, I just shake it and get rid of them. This is how big I am. It's changed like clay under the seal. In other words, it's moldable to me. You put clay down, you put the seal down, you put your impression on it. I can do whatever I want to do with it. God plays with the world the way you and I play with Play-Doh. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. When I want to judge the wicked, I do it. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? You might remember in one of Job's speeches, he talked about no one knows what happens at death. No one knows fully what it's like. No one understands it. God says, I walk in the deepest parts. Where you're frightened of the chaos and confusion, I take a stroll like it's a Sunday afternoon drive. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness that you may take to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. In other words, Job, if you're going to have a conversation with me about my control, then truly you must be a God. And the obvious rhetorical answer is he's not fact is, as God is dealing with the world, what he's saying is, I use it the way I want to use it. He goes on to press this point home, and, and we'll read this in just a moment, picking up verse 22, but it was reminiscent of, to me of, back when I was doing drywall, I walked in one time, and we were short-staffed. And so my boss hired a bunch of guys from one of those places that just gives free labor or whatever. And... And so I was showing this guy how to use uh, a screw gun. It was a battery powder. It was a Makita screw gun. How to run screws in. And so I was getting the pieces of drywall, cutting them, putting them over. And I put a couple of sheets up. We just tacked them up. And I said, you need to run screws all the way down here about every six to eight inches. All the way over here. All the way over here. I got to go check on some stuff. I came back about 15 minutes later to watch him have the Makita drill pressed into the screw. And he's spinning the whole drill. And I stood there. I'm like, what? are we doing with this scene? I was like, bruh, what's the plan? He says, well, it wouldn't run anymore. And this dear person had no clue that you could just change the battery. So he's going to try to run every screw in by turning the entire drill. God bless that man. Drywall was not going to be his game. I remember one time, my grandpa caught me hammering in a nail with the end of a screwdriver. This was not a happy moment in the John's household. You don't mess with tools. You don't use tools wrongly. What God is about to say is, I control my creation to use it like a tool in my hand to do what I want to do. He says, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Verse 22. Have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? It's amazing. He says, I even use the elements to dictate who wins wars. Famously at Austerlitz, Napoleon drove the Russian army back, and as they began to flee over a frozen lake, he did this intentionally. He began to fire, by his training, he was artillery officer. He began to have his cannons fired, not at the troops, but at the edges of the lake. Destroying the ice-covered lake and drowning thousands of Russian soldiers. That's how he won Austerlitz. And so the elements actually aided in his victory, and yet he never was able to conquer Russia because fierce cold storms, wind blew in and literally froze thousands of French soldiers to death. Joshua, in Joshua chapter 10, is chasing away armies that have impacted and tried to invade Israel, and God sends hailstones down upon them to kill them. God says, I use the elements to work out my will even, to control it the way I see fit, to accomplish my ends. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and the desolate land, to make the ground sprout with grass. This is interesting because he says, I cause rain and storms to come. I nourish the earth that no man even walks upon. God, God is telling Job, I control this world for my glory. I control this world in places no man has ever seen, no eye will ever see, so I can declare in my own heart and mind what is good. I'm in control, Job, of everywhere that you live and everywhere no man ever lives. Has the reign of father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? Who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone. The face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish the rule on earth? These are all stars and constellations. What, would, what they would do in Job's days is they would look at this. This is very farmer's almanac kind of stuff. Uh, people still do it today. How, when's the rain going to come? And when's the planting season? And when's the harvest? And how do I know? And they watch the constellation and the stars. They would use the stars in order to guide their ships and to navigate even on the land as they were uh, migrating from one region to the next. And God saying, who do you think controls the constellations and stars? You try to predict the weather, I control the weather. If there's anything outside of our control, it's certainly that. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Why would a person do that? Why would a person cry for the rain? And so what he said is, I use my authority, my control to set up nations or tear down nations, to rule even over battles. In other words, it's a tool in my hand to control the outworking of men, I also use my tools of creation just for my own namesake and for my own glory to delight in the things that I do, to cause the land to flourish and grow even in places that no one even lives. You try to say God or try to command the clouds, send rain. Who's going to be calling for rain? But the farmer, the one who says my crops need rain. He says, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Again, the answer clearly is no, I can't, but you can. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here are we. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding of the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or two can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick fast together. God uses his control as a tool over mankind. He uses a tool for his own glory and he uses the tools of creation to nourish men. We know that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We know that God cares for all of his creation the world is God's tool to do with it as he sees fit. And it begins to defy Job's thinking, and you're in my thinking. I was talking to my wife about this the other day. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Uh, this phrase, <clears throat> obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings cursing or conflict. How many of you have ever heard that before? Yeah. Yeah. Is it true? Sometimes. Not always. You know, I think lots of times we can even look at a big picture way. Think of the nation of Israel. We look at the nation of Israel. They disobeyed, right? They were idolatrous. They, they, they sacrificed their own children. And so God led them into the captivity, right? That's true, right? No question. Was everybody in Israel idolatrous and disobedient? How about Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? We'll just go with those four. Were they disobedient and ungodly? No. Did they suffer with everyone else? Yes. How about Job? Was Job obedient? Did Job suffer? See, the problem is we still want to simplify God to this one plus one equals two. And what God is saying in this passage is, I control creation to do with it as I will. And our struggle is we see things or we experience things and we say, this isn't good, so then God must not be good. He's bringing Job to this point of silence, though. And so he goes on from there. And the next part of the speech is the animate part of the world. It's pretty fun because it's all about how wild the world is. And, and it's amazing the things that he says here. It's book-ended on both ends of the speech with predators and prey. And then you have all this other wildness in the middle uh, let's let's just look at it here at the end of chapter thirty eight. We can see him start to struggle this, start to structure this. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Uh, you could go all the way to the end of it though. Uh, of chapter 39. Look down at verse 26. So these are the bookends. I'm just going to take them together here. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home. On the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood Where the slain are, there is he. What is God talking about? He's saying that even the most powerful creatures, the predators, also are needy. He controls the parts of creation we find confusing, terrifying, dangerous, and overwhelming to work out his will. I'm all about being able to walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and see God's majesty and say, that's amazing. I'm all about standing on the north end of Anna Maria Island in the purest, whitest sand I've ever stood on and watch amazing sunsets that are just arguably, Fromer said, some of the best sunsets you can ever see in the world there on the Gulf Coast. I'm all about that, but, but the terrifying, confusing parts of his creation, he uses those as well, and that's exactly what he's saying. You can actually understand this text if you've ever watched nature shows. It's like you're watching a nature show and it's covering the red ant of Africa. And you're amazed and you see it building all these things and, uh, and and they somehow they get cameras down in this ant nest and you see the chambers and how they all work together. And if, if you're familiar with Proverbs, you're even thinking about go to the ant, oh sluggard, right? Learn from its organization and its structure and you see them all caring for the queen and you see those soldiers marching and they play this fun Sousa marching music as the ants find food, bring it back. And you're like, this is amazing. What do they do when the floodwaters come? And this is amazing. And you're like, suddenly, you're like, it's a bug, and I'm like so attached. And then all of a sudden, warning bells go off, and it sounds like a submarine dive bell. Rrr, 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 and a snout of an aardvark intrudes upon it. And the show ends, right? And you know the next episode going to be all about the aardvark. And so then you're watching the next episode, and you've got begun to forget about the lowly ant, because now you have this aardvark that's so ugly that some women say it's cute. I don't know what's wrong with you, but remember, you're complex creatures. And so and so here's the aardvark and you're like oh this is an amazing aardvark and you see the aardvark have its young and 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 aardvark young stay with an aardvark I don't know what they're called pups I think stay with the aardvark for 5 6 months and and so she carefully hides them and and puts them in a hidey hole and and she goes off to feed so that she can come back and nurse her young and you're like look at this amazing aardvark and so suddenly you're like man the ants were cool but let's be honest there's there's like more ants on the globe than any other insect. We need aardvarks. Yes. Yay. And you're cheering for the aardvark and, and you see her marching back to her den to feed her young that you saw earlier squealing and squawking and she arrives back to the den and all of the babies are gone because the hyena showed up. And your heart is like, really? I hate the hyena. He's ugly and he's mean and I watched The Lion King years ago. Oh, Zabanya. And the hyenas are bad. And sure is the world you see the hyena feeding its young, and you're like, okay, maybe they're not that bad. Only to come to the end of the show for the lion to show up. This is actually what God's displaying. He fashioned the world this way. Now, I know what your heart and my heart wants to go to. Anybody that's been trained in the Bible, I'm going to say, yes, but at the creation, they were all vegetarian, and that's true. But I also would remind you that Christ was slain before the foundations of the world, so he knew exactly what he was doing. And he's saying even the parts of the earth that you and I would find terrifying, the lions. Now, you and I are not terrified by lions because we only see them uh, on the other side of very tall fences at a great distance. But the bravest among us would be shaking in our boots and wetting our pants if we walked out of our tent and there was a hungry lion. And he's saying even the parts of this world, so how do you care about the, the mewling Cub of the lion who's starving, God does. Or the hawk that whose young need to suck up the blood, that's God's language. Even the parts of creation we find confusing or terrifying, they live with neediness, they need the care of God. He is apparent to even these creatures, like he is apparent to the confusing power of the, of the sea. And so it's not just powerful but needy animals, it's confusing but amazing animals. Verse 1, do you know where the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you know the months they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth? Do you know God is present, ever-present, because he's omnipresent and he's omniscient? It's not just that he sees the lowly sparrow that falls to the ground. He attends to the birth of every mountain goat. Every animal he lists here is unusable for farming. None of them are tame, but they're all fascinating. When they crouch, they bring forth their offspring and are delivered to their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains in his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? The wild ox is an ancient animal that's long since left the earth, but its horns, listen to this, were over six feet long. They were terrifying and could destroy a man in a moment. Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes or will he harrow the valleys after you? They had tried to tame and domesticate this ox so they could use it because it's so big and so powerful. It was impossible to them. Will you depend upon him because his strength is great? Will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather to your threshing floor? No, he would destroy their farms. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are pinions and plumage of love. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? Sure, he, loves, he leaves their eggs to the earth, lets them be warmed on the ground. Forgetting that a foot may crush them, that the wild beast may trample them. He's saying as beautiful as the ostrich is, which that's not the prettiest picture of an ostrich up there. She's not one that you should follow how she treats her young. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. So the same animal that has no fear of humanity or man is like whatever, also doesn't care for her own eggs. How can this be? All the confusing things of life are still amazing and they are in his control and part of his design. Job cannot understand this any more than we can, but we can all marvel at the beauty that they possess. And then the third category It's things in his creation that are frightening, but awe-inspiring. And here God begins to draw it to a sharper point. He describes a war horse in verses 19 through 25. The war horse was the tank of Job's day. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. Now, I know what you might be thinking, but wait a minute, Steve. You said none of these are domesticated animals, but where he pictures Job as he talks about the war horse is not the rider of the war horse, but the infantryman standing on the field about to be ridden into the dust by the war horse. Just like you and I feel when we're about to be trampled under the sorrows of our lives. I can't even get up off the ground. It's those PTSD moments. When you don't think you can handle one more message of bad news. And it's going to ride you into the dirt. Do you make him leap like the locusts? Verse 20, his majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet shouts, sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. You and I are terrified by parts of God's creation. We're terrified by diagnoses that we're going to hear from a doctor. We're terrified by tests and the test result. We're terrified by checking our bank account. We're terrified by relational conflict and loss. We're terrified for the sake of our children and grandchildren. We're terrified In our singleness, we're terrified in our marriage. We're terrified in our friendships. We are easily frightened people because there's so many things in God's creation we cannot control, and they seem to be grinding us down into the dust. And we lay on our beds at night, and our minds swirl and race like tornado-force winds. Our tears fall from our eyes like floodwaters. We're in the midst of the storm, and we say, God, oh, God, I can't do it anymore. Who is in control of the terrifying things of this world? When we're about to be ridden down into the dust, we realize there is a rider and there is one who controls the war horse of life and of our suffering. And God is saying, I do. The obvious answer to all of God's rhetorical questions about all of these animals is clear. God can and he knows and Job can't and he doesn't understand in Job's case, we know that God has permitted Satan to use natural means to prey upon Job, to terrify Job, to mysteriously afflict Job. God is asking Job this question. If I can, if I can, and I do use all of these in creation to show my power and my glory, could it also be that there is something deeper and richer in the mysterious, terrifying, and powerful suffering you are experiencing? Let me say that to you again. If God in his mystery can control snow and hail and swaddle the ocean like a baby and structure ostriches and lions and hawks and wild oxes and go to the depths of the sea and there's something mysterious about God and complex about God. Could it be that there's something mysterious and complex that he's doing in your life through the suffering that you're experiencing that can't be reduced to one plus one equals two? God can silence our accusations so we can rest in him before we ever praise him. How does our silence happen? Job gets to the end of this speech and he says, I have nothing to say. So I want you to go back just as we finish to 38 at the beginning. In verse 4, he says this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand if you have understanding. And so we would ask who was there. See, Job has judged God's creation to be evil. Job has said, God, you run this world really bad and the creation is messed up. And so he asked them, were you there? Well, Job wasn't, so I'm going to ask you, who was there? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I'll tell you who was there. Christ. The very first pictures that we get of the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is at creation. One God, three persons. Proverbs 8, and I'd encourage you to read it this week describes the presence of wisdom at creation. But John 1, 1 through 1-5 says it explicitly. In the beginning was the Word. That's Christ. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. How did the sun and then the angels who were among His first created beings... How do the angels respond when they see God's creation? They shout with joy. Why can Job not shout with joy over the mysterious things that God is doing? Job comes to the end of this speech and he's silent, but he's not praising. And he's silent, I'm convinced, because there's one major question in Job's mind about God's creation. How does the use of evil And terrible things fit in with this, God. That's going to be God's second speech. I'm not going to preach that to you this morning because the time's done. Spoiler alert, you've got to come next week. But can we come to a place where we're willing to at least rest and say, I don't know, but he does. I can't do it, but he can. How can this truth help us? In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis says this, you never know how much you believe anything, until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. He wrote that as he was trying to wrestle through the goodness of God when his wife, whose name was Joy, had died. His joy was gone. I underlined that sentence over 20 years ago, reading that book. Nothing brings God's goodness, kindness, love, and most importantly, his control into perspective like suffering does. Lewis wrestled with what Job is wrestling with. How can I trust a God who has brought me into such sorrow? Job is fighting to believe. Lewis was fighting to believe. And yet they both kept turning to God for answers. Here's what this chapter tells us at this point. God comes to his suffering child gently. God reminds us that he alone is in control. God reminds us that there are confusing, powerful, and mysterious things under his control being worked out for his glory. Is your pain puzzling like Job's? Do you feel like you are drowning in sorrow that is confusing, powerful, and mysterious? If you and I could see it, if we could zoom out and really see it, God is telling us we would actually declare what he is doing as good also. In seasons of anxiety and suffering, we need to rest in the God who moves the stars into constellations. We need to rest in the God who uses rain and snow and hail to conquer armies. We need to rest in the God who feeds the earth. We need to rest in the God who has structured the ant, the hawk, the lion, and he oversees the birthing of wild goats. We need the God who knows every sparrow that falls to the ground and clothes every flower. We need the God who is good and kind and loves us. We need rest in him. Overwhelm us, God, with your power and keep on putting us in awe of you until our hearts come to rest, until our minds settle and our accusations are silenced. So the next time Job will answer, open his mouth, it will be in praise. And so let our prayers be, God, would you, who diaper the ocean, would you swallow me in your love and hold me in your arms so that I can rest in you? And it's enough for me to say I don't understand, but I trust the one who's in control because he is good. And he's not even angry at me for struggling over it. That's the God I want, and it's the God I need. And praise be Almighty, it is the God who is.